Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwell. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you have met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation to the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord? How foolish people have reviled your name? Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O oh God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing. Thanks, Uche. So, as Tom said, I'm the pastor to postgrads at the school gate. Sometimes some of the other parents are like, so what do you actually do then? And I'm delighted to say that as of three years ago, my honest answer was, um, well, this week I'm, I'm spending a few days dressed up in an inflatable dinosaur costume. Um, some of my time will be spent messing about on the river, balanced on a paddleboard to simultaneously entertain and terrorize the children who are here for the um, children's holiday club thing. The backstory to that bizarre situation is that they had a time machine, of course, which was malfunctioning a bit, and so what happened was that they were meant to summon a disciple of Jesus to come and tell them all about 
Jesus and the stories of what it meant to follow him, but instead it went a bit wrong and they released a dinosaur out into Oxford for, the, for, for a few days. Um, thankfully, don't worry, it was, it was put back. But it was one of the great privileges of my summer, and my year, in fact, uh, possibly my life, that I got to play this dinosaur for a few days. It was a lot of fun. I share this by way of explanation, really, where my headspace was a few weeks ago when the instruction came through that I was allowed to choose whichever psalm I wanted to teach on for these um, wild August weeks. And um, so it was, could have been the Holy Spirit that drew me to Psalm 74. It could have been the inflatable dinosaur costume messing about on the river. Um, it could have been both, because as we know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Anyway, Psalm 74 is our psalm for this morning, and it's got a sea monster in it. So that's where, uh, that's the connection there. It also has something important to say, I think, about holding on to hope in the midst of despair. It's a psalm written for facing profound loss and sadness and, and grief. And what do we do? How do you hold on to hope in the midst of that? It's a psalm for the dark places of the land, to quote a line from towards the end of the psalm there. I was reading this week about the, the sad scenes, really, that play out in hotel casinos um, around the world, probably going on right now in some dark corners, windowless caverns that are lit only by the little flashing lights and the empty promise of a win. The whole place is windowless, um, clockless, designed to, to stop you from looking up and, and, and realizing what time of day it is and what am I up to? Uh, researchers have, have witnessed people sort of sitting at these machines for over 10 hours straight to the point of developing blood clots. Part of the reason these machines are so addictive is that they're, they're designed to reward um, and disguise your losses and, and dress them up as wins. So you can put in one pound and then the, the machine will beep and flash and congratulate you for winning 20p, when in reality you've just lost 80p. And people will be there all day, their losses being dressed up as wins. The Psalms, a quick look through the book of Psalms, you'll see makes no provision for dressing up our losses as wins. These prayer poems, these kind of model prayers for us, are painfully honest. They're honest about our pain. So if they're schooling us in prayer, very quickly what we're going to learn is that this prayer thing is not about pretending to be holy. It's not about entering a delusion. It's not about repressing our feelings. It's not about denial. It's about being honest. So many of these 150 prayers are laments. Psalm 74 is an honest lament. It's a desperate prayer in response to a tragedy. And it's got a multi-headed sea monster in it. So let's get into it. First one, why have you rejected us forever, O oh God? This is not a plight opening line, and you can sort of understand why when you, when you realize it's written in response to the devastating events of the Babylonian exile. So mid-6th century BC, so, six, so 580 odd years before Jesus uh, walked, what happened was, the Babylonian Empire marched into town and destroyed 
Jerusalem, destroyed everything for the Israelites. They lost their king. They lost all their bright young ones, people like Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, remember him? But perhaps most painful of all, they lost their temple. Verses six to eight, and a bit more actually, but let's read verses six to eight, detail this devastating loss. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshiped in the land. It was devastating. The special dwelling place of the Lord their God in their midst, their whole sense of God with them, of God protecting them, it was gone, it was destroyed, it was burned to the ground. And the understandable and evident conclusion would have been that, well, perhaps Marduk, who's the the favorite hero god of the the Babylonians, the, the Babylon Empire, perhaps Marduk has in fact destroyed, think perhaps he's victorious, or if not that, because they were well-schooled in the ancient faith of their forefathers, then at least that the Lord their God had abandoned them, that he'd left, that it was over. Because if your whole understanding of things is that, and you've got to work a little bit to get into the kind of ancient human imagination here, if your whole understanding of things is that in the beginning there were dark waters covering the deep, dark, chaotic waters, and then, that's what it says in, in Genesis, the Spirit of God hovered over the, hovered over the waters and the, the waters covered the surface of the deep. So that was the primordial state. We sometimes think of like a kind of nothingness that predates a big bang, and that's our initial um, primordial state. For the ancient imagination, the, the, the beginning, in the beginning there were just dark waters, no life, no light, no land, just these waters. But then, your faith, what you've come to believe is that there is a creative, and loving God who, out of the waters, is establishing a beautiful order of things, a good order of things. And central to his purposes is the existence of this small, unlikely people group. So then, if that's your way of understanding everything, when this, everything comes crashing to the ground, quite literally, for this people group, then the obvious conclusion is that God very may very well may have rejected us forever, as every beautiful and good bit of ordering seems to be coming undone, and the chaos waters are rising once again. And so we get to verse 9. We're given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows for how long. It echoes the words of my Ukrainian friends, um, who I had the privilege of picking up from the airport um, just last week. They'd been fresh shelling in their home city, and so they wanted to come to the UK. Um, they'd been here before, but come back for another um, period of relief, really. And as I picked them up from the airport late one night, the relief on their faces was evident. There was a kind of a, to quote them, ah, normal life is what they said. Life in my country is not normal. Buildings are on fire and people are dying. And the thing is, she said, none of us knows for how long. What about the words of my five-year-old daughter last week again, engaging with the sadness surrounding the, the death of one of her mother's, one of her friend's mother, 
her friend's mother, um, who died uh, just last week, the result of a long illness. And this, this five-year-old is just grappling with this new possibility for tragedy and, and sadness in the world. She screws up her little face and she says, why does life have to be like this? How long, O oh Lord? Why? When all the good and beautiful ordering of things seems to be coming undone and getting overrun, and you can list the, the banking on the politics, the viruses, now the wildfires, sea level literally rising with climate chaos, the many-headed monsters of violence and addiction that seem to be riding in on a quiet tide of pornography or waves of war and disease that are just wrecking things. With the psalmist, with my Ukrainian friend, with my five-year-old daughter, we may very well ask, how much longer, oh God? Why does life have to be like this? And the first 11 verses of this psalm and so many of the other psalms, if you have a flick through, give us permission to voice our profound fears, our, our sense of grief and loss and sadness, even despair. But, are you ready for a mood change? This is where it comes, with a big but at the beginning of verse 12. But you, O oh God, and it's like the psalmist takes deep breath at this point. But you, O oh God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. And now verse 13 is where we get to the sea monsters. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. What is that about? Maybe you're, you're just getting there with the whole like, possibility of being open to believing in this whole God thing. Yes, maybe life is a bit more marvelous than you'd previously um, been living under the impression. And now they're asking you to believe in the ancient equivalent of the Loch Ness Monster. What? <laughs> Be reassured, this is not what is about. Believing in ancient sea monsters is not part of the deal. Um, but reading this stuff is actually quite a, a cool opportunity, I think, to re-enter the ancient human imagination before David Attenborough and all of that, which is kind of cool because when you get to this stuff and you're reading about Leviathan and sea monsters and things like that, you can come to respect it. Rather than throwing it all out as pre-modern nonsense, actually you come to respect what's going on here. This is really quite a neat literary device, this literary tool, this placeholder of sea monster that is putting these verses into conversation with the surrounding culture of the day. To explain a little bit more, so you can see what I mean, I think we need some archaeology. So in 1849, there was a British archaeologist in Mosul, uh, modern-day Iraq, and he was messing around in the dust, and he found these seven clay tablets. So he did the, we've got a picture of, of one of them, that's tablet number three. Um, and he did what, what you do and he robbed them all the way back to the British Museum where they were put on display. And they were put on display there and a, a, a young teenager in their lunch breaks, this is before computer games and things like that, um, in his lunch break, a guy called George Smith, 
he would spend his, his lunch breaks in the British Museum, just fascinated by all of this stuff, to the point where he came to decipher uh, the meaning. Um, and what he discovered was that these clay tablets, um, dating from, I think, the 7th, 8th century BC, so it's just 100 years before the events that triggered this psalm are being written. So it gives us a real great window. What he discovered was, on these clay tablets, wait for it, is a, a most significant piece of Babylonian theology. It was their account of creation. It was how they understood things came into be. And it was fascinating. It's, it's known as the Enuma Elish, for those of you who want to Google it later, and that just follows the first two words of, that are decipherable on these tablets. Um, and it's at the center of it, on tablet number three that you just saw. For those of you who can't read the, the cuneiform, I'll just explain it for you. Um, <laughs> at the center of, the, of, this, of this epic poem, this epic account of, of creation, according to Babylonian mythology, is this cosmic battle between Marduk, who's their aforementioned favorite hero, um, god, and Tiamat, the enemy. And Tiamat is this watery, chaos monster, and they have this big battle, and it's kind of 50-50, um, but uh, Marduk causes the winds to blow and blow into Tiamat's, uh, distends uh, the sea monster's belly, allowing an arrow to fire and defeat, and a mace is involved, smashing the head, and eventually he's able to fillet Tiamat, and he stretches out her watery dragon body to create the waters above and the waters below. What's the waters above and the waters below? Again, you have to kind of put away those models of the solar system that you enjoyed in your primary school and the maps and the, the globes and all of that and realize that in the ancient human imagination, their sense of the cosmos was more like, a, I'd say, a snow globe, except the water was above and below and inside was the expanse. So Genesis 1, if you turn to that and read it with that, picture in mind, you suddenly realize what they're saying. What does it say? And God said, Genesis 1 verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, separating the waters above from the waters below. So there's this shared understanding. The writers of the Bible share this conception of how things are with the surrounding cultures, with the culture of Babylon as well. But notice the key contrasts. I'm sorry if you're like, this is a bit too geeky for a Sunday morning. Um, welcome to Postgrads. We do things like this. Anyway, <laughs> the big notice the big contrasts with the Babylonian take. So in the Genesis 1 account, it's the God of, of course, it's the God of Israel who is the one establishing this beautiful and good order out of the chaos, not Marduk. And the good and beautiful ordering, ordering of things is being established with just a word. There's no rival involved. There's no cosmic battle. So the claim is that the universe is not being established through an act of cosmic violence, but the universe is conceived with just this word of love. In Psalm 74, the psalmist is tapping into the same kind of dynamic contrast, making some points in contrast with the surrounding assumptions with the Babylonian culture, which is kind of a brave thing to do because remember, it's the Babylonians who've just wrecked everything for the Israelites. And here he is making some kind of theological defense moves here in verses 13 and 14. This is what I mean. 
So it's like he's saying, this empire has got its, its story about Marduk splitting open the seas. But verse 13, it was you, Lord, who split open the sea by your power. And then it's like, he's, you know, these people in the surrounding culture, they all think they've got their songs about Marduk crushing the head of the chaos sea monster. Verse 13, it was you, Lord, who crushed all the heads of the sea monster, even serving it up as food for the creatures of the desert. It's a great moment. Doesn't get much more humiliating for the chaos monsters of deep, dark waters to be served up as sushi in the driest of all sorts of places. The point is this. The point that he's been making is this. Lord God, you are the king from of old, the only one who stands above it all, above all of this rebellious mess, all of this chaos we find ourselves in. Creation may be threatened by the waters of chaos, yet you remain utterly unthreatened, entirely unrivaled. So I'm there on the river, kneeling on the paddleboard in this inflatable dinosaur costume. And by this point, by this point, I've teamed up, I don't know if you can see, with a colleague who will remain unnamed inside the shark costume, because I don't think Jodie would be too pleased about this show. She might be a bit embarrassed about what happens next. Anyway, the, um, and it's kind of epic, okay? So we're, we're here, you've got limited visibility inside this thing. Um, no peripheral vision at all. The little window is steaming up because steaming up I was breathing so hard with excitement, I think, as, as this big river cruiser carrying, I don't know, 120, 150 kids that were on this, this comes around the corner. And much to their surprise and excitement and delight, there's the dinosaur and a shark. And the water guns are going off the edge. I can hear the tannoy of the man saying, please don't everyone go to the same side of the boat at the, at the same time. <laughs> And we were doing our best. We were roaring and we were splashing. Um, but, but what happened next was just as the ship slipped past, it must have been, I don't know if you can see the massive bow wave coming off the back of that. <laughs> Neither can I. It's just, it's just like a, probably a tiny bit of wash would probably be a more accurate description. Um, it was enough, anyway, to capsize the poor shark. <laughs> and and much to the delight of the, the children who are yeah, seeing the ironic sight of a drowning shark. <laughs> One eight-year-old, I think, was, was heard then referring, explaining it to his friend. That, oh, no, it's because it's a land shark. Um, <laughs> you have two inflatable suits, a... Um, a paddleboard and a kayak versus this hulking great big river cruiser I'm sure had been floating long before paddleboards were even a thing. It was absolutely no contest. There are monstrous things. There is a chaos that threatens, yet there is a king from of old who remains utterly unthreatened, entirely unrivaled. This means there is no cruise missile, or philosophy, or proud human institution, or demonic force, or AI tech revolution, or anything else that we might be tempted to put our trust in that even comes close. 
And what's more, the unrivaled Holy One has made a covenant. He's made a promise, which is extremely good news, and it's the only source of our hope. And it's the remaining source of hope that the psalmist is clinging onto in verse 20. It says this, have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. That's a prayer. Have regard for your covenant. Remember your covenant. Remember your promise, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. It's a prayer that some 600 years later, the writers of the New Testament saw was answered in Jesus Christ. How the Lord did indeed have regard for his covenant. How he didn't reject us forever, but has stepped right into the midst of the chaos in Jesus Christ and taken on the darkest monsters of the deep, all sin, all death, and the devil, disarming them, undermining them, and triumphing over them by his death on the cross. And then, rising in a most surprising, glorious, victorious new life so that they can write with confidence that nothing in all creation can now separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. No death, no war, no disease, no tech revolution, no failure, no collapse, no catastrophe, no monsters, nor anything can now separate us from the great ship of God's love. In the face of all that threatens us, we are safe. We don't want to trade here in glib answers and cheap words. Not when the questions that some of us are facing right now are the deep ones, like how long, oh Lord? Why does life have to be like this? What is going to come for me and my story over the next few years? We don't know how our particular stories and situations and the threats that we face will pan out. But we do know that we face it all from within the safety of the great ship of God's covenant love. And let me tell you, this is not just a a nice theory or a concept. God's active presence, his power, his peace is with us. We can know it in very real, experienced ways. Help is at hand. And you find yourself in the midst of a storm. You can know this gift irrational kind of peace in your bones when you, when you really shouldn't be feeling that. When you're f- facing horrors in life, there is a gift of courage that you can receive, a gift of strength that will help you to stand and not be overwhelmed, not be defeated. There is a legitimate, enduring hope and even a joy that doesn't make sense except for the fact that it's rooted on this solid rock of God's love. One final thing to say from this psalm, if you're going through it right now, take a look at verse 21 and notice that this covenant that God makes is especially for the oppressed, the poor, the needy, the overrun by a foreign power, those despairing of life itself. The promise of God is for you. And the promise contains the truth that there is so much to look forward to.
Revelation 21, right at the end of the Bible, paints this picture of, of the destiny of things. And it's got a curious line that says, there will be no more sea. What's that about? I quite like the beach. <laughs> it's tapping into this same poetic, symbolic, significant language that says there'll be no more chaos. God's ordering of things, his beautiful and good order of things is gonna arrive, it's going to fully arrive. His kingdom will come. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who grieve. There is all manner of consolation. There is so much to look forward to. So take heart, receive the gift of peace, this help that is at hand. There is together. We can, we, can, we can get there, we can stay standing, we can still hold on to hope and face whatever we need to face. Should we stand together? Psalm 74 gives us permission to say exactly how it is, so you might want to take a moment to pray your very real complaint or lament or question and bring that into your prayer. Psalm 74 encourages us to look up from the midst of the storm and remember that our faith is in the unrivaled one, in the utterly unthreatened one. And then in Jesus, we are invited, each of us invited to participate and anticipate something of the hope and the joy, this fullness of life that is heaven and God's presence and his power. There is a, there's a very real help that is at hand. So as we sing and as we pray together and pray for one another, I encourage you to uh, lean in, open up, be, be, be really honest and receive some of the goodness and the help that is on offer for you this morning. Amen.